what's decisive around time to market is the capacity to learn. And what impedes learning is people's lack of awareness about how their deployment of assets slows down and either grinds transactions to a halt or creates delay. Then just by paying attention to how I get to participate in a transaction really does speed things up straight away. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology. We're the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with their work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Alex Bold works with large tech corporations to shorten their time to market. Working in the San Francisco Bay Area, he leads enterprise-scale agile transformations to help solve billion-dollar problems. In this interview, he talks about how what differentiates market leaders from market followers and how this is changing. For the longest time, the pursuit of efficiency and productivity has dominated the landscape. Higher efficiency and productivity leads to lower costs and lower risks for greater scale. As the marginal return for increased productivity diminishes, the landscape is now shifting. It's shifting to one where the companies that can outlearn their competition will dominate. Recently, he and I worked together to bring transactional competence into his work with Western Digital Corporation. Western Digital is a Fortune 200 American computer data storage company, and Alex is helping companies enter a new era where developing their fitness and how to think accurately is a core competency for any business operating at scale. He also addresses how the speed with which stuff gets done or where hard problems get handled creates a lot of room to move freely in an organization. Here's the interview. Alex, welcome to the Influence Ecology Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you, John. Good to be here. Take a moment and introduce yourself for people that don't know you. Sure. My name is Alex Bold. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And what I do is work with large tech corporations to help them shorten their time to market. Living in the Silicon Valley, it's an environment where there's a lot of large tech corporations, a lot of brands that people know. And those brands have um, very large uh, market presences and they operate at scale. And we're in an environment that where the markets are wanting to move much faster than the product, existing product development life cycles. So large companies are dealing with how do we speed up our product development time? How do we get our products in market sooner? And that's a challenge. Because <laughs> maybe so, obvious, but, but to, to those that are yeah. listening newly and don't know that environment, why is that a challenge? Well, it's, it's actually a function of scaling generally, which is as things scale, they tend to take longer. Things tend to take longer and, and um, the mm. cost of coordination tends to create delay. And also, um, not having access to information in a timely manner means that people tend to take actions that are actually counterproductive to uh, shortening cycle times and getting products out. So it's a bit of an irony as companies become more and more successful and as their scale grows, their, their ability to move quickly declines. So we have ways of working with companies primarily in, in implementing agile practices at scale that allow companies to shorten their uh, time to market for their products. And since you bring up agile, yes, can you just say something briefly about what that is for the general audience? Well, it's a it's a it's a category name that's used to describe a way of working together. That, that what and what what it primarily distinguishes is that it's team based. And it's cadence-driven. So things happen in time boxes, and it's with teams. And some of the salient points about that is work is brought to the teams rather than teams being brought to the work. And that work is being mediated through a backlog and that managers no longer direct work. Mm. 
Okay, good. Thanks. So let's talk a little bit about your own journey sort of before Influence Ecology. You participated now since when? Do you remember? Yeah, uh, I'm going to do the math. So it'll be October 2016. 16. Okay. Yeah. And as everybody has a journey when they participate here, everyone goes through a kind of learning journey in in brief form, can you describe your learning journey once you started studying here, what you discovered, perhaps what you were thinking then, <laughs> what you discovered about where you might be naive or where there might be some conceit or, or whatnot? And we'll get to where are you now, but take us a little bit back before to the early days. Well, the, so immediately before starting Influence Ecology, I was kind of baffled. Why? Like, what is it that people cannot see about how I see the world that leaves them to constantly struggle in areas which seem to me to be obvious? Like, well, if you just did this or did that, things would just work out. And it's a somewhat, you know, you can probably hear the hubris there right away. It's like, well, I'm the one who's struggling right now because I'm baffled about how come they're not <laughs> they're baffled, right? So there's a certain, mm. certain self-referential nature to that. The... <laughs> And then, so I uh, first learned about uh, influence ecology through a good friend of mine, Anna Athanasiou. And I was aware that she had been studying with influence ecology for maybe two years by that stage, something like that. And my version of it is, oh, look, I'll just do the six-month program. That'll be enough. I can't imagine needing to study for more than six months. You know? mm. And um, and so, again, there's some arrogance right there, like, Making, you know, making up immediately that I knew what the benefit was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I got started, and our first program is six months long, to, you know, 12 uh, webinars. And um, I think the thing that I really had to deal with was how much study was involved, like eight hours a week for me. I think some people study much quicker than I do, but it was a solid eight hours a week of study. And, and what was really irritating was having to, these questions that are on the learning system are like really simple questions, but they take hours to answer because there's critical thinking required, thinking that I hadn't done. And anyway, so I just got confronted from the beginning about how naive I was about thinking about important things, things that turn out to be important. And then regardless of that, I was dealing with, um, putting a new offer into the marketplace and engaging with people. And my experience was simply this, is that I just did the work that was being described to do. I just did the work. I started inventing transactions and, and moving in transactions the way it's described. Mm. And people started responding positively. And then I started to get offers and, and then I got contracts. And then, I mean, just while well, my revenue started going up and it was like, wow, this really works. Mm. Yeah. That's good. And and then just for a moment, so because I know a little bit of your journey, so your revenue started to go up, you had some offers that begin to get accepted, uh, larger offers that begin to get accepted. You found mm -hmm. yourself moving into, as we describe it, higher and higher ecologies. In other words, the ecologies that, that if they accept your offers, can, you can meet your aims. That's what we mean yeah. by that. Yeah. And so, so, you know, here you are now three perhaps almost four years later, and life is very different. So just kind of in brief, it's different how now for you as an individual than it was three or four years ago. Well, I think, I think the primarily, primarily the, I mean, it sounds trite. I'm just happier. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not trite. <laughs> So there's a way, like what used to be a mystery to me is like, why doesn't everybody think like I do was a mystery. And, um, and then, uh, but now um, just through applying the distinctions of influence ecology, I find it so much easier to move in the world, like moving with my colleagues and friends at, um, you know, where, where I spend most of my time at large corporation, um, moving freely in that environment, seeing them, accomplish their aims, seeing the results that we're wanting to accomplish with a company getting accomplished as well. It's just joyful. Mm. I, I mean, I'm a hardcore perform. I, I focus a lot on fitness and performance and it seems odd to me that I would describe it as joyful, but it is. For those that may know you personally, you 
you seem to get a great deal of joy out of a variety of ways in which to develop your own fitness, whether it's your physical fitness, sure. uh, mastery over certain approaches to different things from, you know, I can hear you talk about riding a bicycle yeah. uh, for an hour as it pertains to your fitness, or right. you happen to be involved in um, marksmanship and, and the like, and that fitness or physical fitness or the fitness to perform. In fact, many of our conversations have opened my own eyes to the way in which people either do or don't address fitness as a key component to satisfying some of their aims. Um, you made some notes in your, you know, in what you offered and you, you talked a little bit about, you said this, and I'm just going to read it because I think it's brilliant. You said that as the marginal return for increased productivity diminishes, the landscape is shifting and it's shifting to one where companies can, that can outlearn their competition will dominate. And yeah. so it brings me to fitness because right. you're speaking about a fitness to, to what? Well, so there's so many layers to this, John. So there's a history to the way in which people seek to, operate at scale in corporations where a lot of the initial learnings came out of manufacturing and a lot of people will be familiar with the Toyota production system, theory constraints, lean manufacturing and so forth. And these were popularized and generally shown to be extremely valuable for companies to manage things in, which are otherwise counterintuitive to them. But when we apply it to product development, something goes missing, which is that people don't notice that in manufacturing, there's very, very low variance. In fact, the design of a manufacturing line is to have almost no variance. But product development is very different. Product development has inherently got a lot of variance. And so people mistakenly take lean manufacturing techniques and apply them to product development and end up with really bad results. What's missing from this is if you ignore the fact that you're in an environment that has a lot of variance, what that's really pointing to is that there's a lack of accurate thinking in the planning. And it's not because people don't know how to think accurately. It's that there's uncertainty and variance in the planning inherently, in the product design inherently. So we need a process that's resilient to dealing with the variance. And if we can take the, the thinking that's required to to manage for that in a responsible mm. way that gives us the timelines we want for product development. We get, we, you know, it goes extremely well. Mm. So a way to characterize that is that an essential component to product development nowadays is how quickly can I learn? And, and one of the challenges we have is learning requires us to acknowledge that we don't already know. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> It's like really, really difficult for companies that are addicted to predictability. That's really yes. difficult. Um, distinguishing between the predictability that's associated with manufacturing and the predictability that's associated with, here's what's predictable in product development. Oh, the schedule will vary and there'll be breakdowns. That's the predictable. So how do I develop my resilience to that? How do I develop my, how do I think accurately about thinking accurately? I think we're getting to the point now where large-scale organizations have mastered the pathways around efficiency gains and productivity improvement. And what will differentiate is the speed with which they can learn. Who can outlearn others will be the differentiator. That's fantastic. I'm, I wrote an article recently, and it talked about sort of the, the generations or the eras of organizational learning or organizational activity. You know, people mm -hmm. are familiar, of course, with the um the industrial age mm -hmm. uh, or the factory the assembly line people are familiar with quality and efficiency movements and all mm -hmm. of those kinds of things i'm hearing you describing much other you know other eras so is it in your mind that that the ability to learn is a a new era that's that's beginning to arise like if, if organizations are to compete and keep up and produce products at the speed with which we're now moving, is, is that kind of learning? Yeah, so there's, there's, an arc, there's an arc in this, which is that it's a pattern that repeats over time. So where there's some kind of advantage, we would call it specialized knowledge, um, which is not able to be easily replicated by others, especially if it's counterintuitive. 
that creates an advantage in the marketplace that allows some people, if they take advantage of it, to um, to keep growing faster than others. And then over time, the codification of that specialized knowledge, it becomes more and more general until, it, in fact, it becomes table stakes. So before I can compete, I literally cannot compete nowadays in the world unless I use lean manufacturing. You know, lean manufacturing, number one, reduces the cost of capital. There's just you know, decimated volume of um, of work in process. It's a tenth of the volume that used to be around. So, um, you know, it's just, I'm just not viable as a manufacturer at scale unless I can do lean manufacturing. Now, as we move into lean product development, as we as we learn how to do things in much shorter timeframes, that advantage really, there's huge penalties that are coming second and third and fourth in marketplaces. It, yeah, say something easy. about that. Yeah. Because I, mean, I know you and I talk about that a bit, but yeah. say something about that. Well, it, there's lots of ways people talk about it. First mover advantage, fast follower, so so forth. But some some markets are characterized by paying a huge premium for first in market because the customers are dealing with the constraint where early access to that product gives them an economic advantage. And so they're willing to pay a lot. So in some markets, they'll pay an 80% premium for first in market. Second in market will be par, third will be par. Fourth will be a 50% discount, and fifth will be a 100% discount. In other words, no one will buy any of your product if you're first to market. So what becomes important is, can I get to market first? And then what becomes negotiable is what feature sets are in the product. So the economics of the customer applying the technology of the product actually dictate the value. And what we might think is valuable when we first start a product development might change over time. So what matters is, can I show up to market on time with the best product I can. So it's a bit like, you know, we talk about it like this. It's like that you can't, the Olympics is going to happen on a certain date. So if you want to compete, you need to show up as fit as you possibly can on that date to race. You don't get to go to the committee and say, hey, listen, I haven't quite got my schedule sorted out for the, for my training. Can we shift the 100 meters to the you know, three weeks later? That doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> right, And yet most product development methodologies are set up in a way where that's absolutely inevitable. We will show up later than the scheduled delivery date. Well, we're saying companies that are capable of delivering on a particular date with the best product they can are outperforming companies that, that can't. And we see that with Apple, you know, and we see that with any seasonal kind of product. There's no question that the version of the next version of the iPhone is showing off in October. It always does. It has whatever features and capabilities they were able to put in in time mm. for that release date. They're never not going to ship on that date because the Christmas purchasing is just too valuable. Right? Mm. So, yeah, that's an example of that. For those that don't know, Alex and Influence Ecology, we've been working together now for, is it about a year, a year and a half? Yeah, yeah. A year and a half Yeah. on a way to bring to the market our approach and more of an enterprise offer. And I'm curious as to how you see transactional competence helping with the endeavors that you're charged with solving. Sure. I, it's probably two or three lines of thought that can get woven together here. So there's a consequence to rolling out these agile transformations at scale, which is that because the work starts getting done by teams and the work is being mediated through a backlog, managers no longer have a role which involves directing the work that team members do. And so that kind of creates a bit of a vacuum. And then there's a second order effect, which is that in using the disciplined approach that Agile brings to the way in which we make trade-offs and allocate work, the amount of firefighting that's required actually diminishes enormously. So what you end up with is a lot of really talented people as functional managers whose last five or 10 years has involved a substantial amount of firefighting, uh, now more or less idle. <laughs> and some of them have a predisposition to become arsonists and so we can you know they can light some more fires to put them out right and it's like it's a perennial problem and it and it can be talked about really disparagingly in, in the agile community and i you know it's not a term i favor at all but sometimes they, they call it the permafrost or the clay or something but it's that body of people that exists between executive management and teams that um, are extremely influential in creating the kind of environment in which performing happens. Um, in fact, we would 
in influence ecology, we call that the consequential environment, and that they are the authors and the maintainers of that consequential environment. So in dealing with this, we I was looking at it as, okay, this is a tremendous resource here, and I'd like to find a way to make use of this for accomplishing our aim of reducing cycle time. So having studied with influence ecology, it was like, okay, is there a way for us to bring together a lot of the distinctions that we have available to us to manage our personal aims? Could we package that up in some way that would allow us to satisfy team aims? So this is an essential component. Could we take this group of functional managers that otherwise operate independently and bring them together to into a team where the team aim was to deconstruct the existing environment and reconstruct the environment in a way that actually supported the team performance for the product development. So and, that was and if a, pause for just a yeah. moment. There's in working with some of these teams and in experiencing some mm-hmm. of the difficulty. There's the as you call it the permafrost. There's the culture of command and control. Mm-hmm. As we would say it at Influence Ecology, we would talk about self-acting or interacting, you know, a bit of overlording or a bit of trying to get people to do the things I need them to do Mm -hmm. from on high coming Mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. Right. So now now that's all, you know, sort of taken apart. Mm -hmm. And you now have people who need a new framework, need a new approach, need a new way in which to address their role in the larger transaction, right? Yeah. So we, we tended to characterize it like this, is this idea of working on the environment in which the the, the, the teams could perform in building the, uh, the product is an example of working on the business. And so the work we did to build uh, transactional confidence for cross-functional teams, that particular offering, is provides a lexicon, provides a way of reasoning with using language how to work on the business, which is a big shift from working in the business, right? That's also really relevant for people's own career paths because as as people become more senior, they're actually working on the business rather than in the business generally. That's generally the shift that's happening. So, yeah. So for you, what have you seen happen as you brought some of the principles and distinctions of transactional competence into the work you're doing at Western Digital? One of the precepts or tenants behind this is that in any engagement myself or my team has with with the organization we're always looking to what happens when we leave so how do we leave the organization where where there are people within the organization that can be responsible for the ongoing transformation can be responsible for people's fitness and performance so how do we do that so we we have a particular attention on the on the environment. We have three levels that we work with. There's what we call the agile change agents, which are at the team level. We have the guiding coalition, which is the executive leadership at the line of business level, and we have the lean agile leaders, which are the group of functional managers that have made the transition to being a team that works on the environment. And so, I initially our, our thought was that bringing in TCX would accelerate things and would raise people's fitness beyond what we could ordinarily do. What we've seen as a consequence of that, that these groups, these agile change agents and these lean agile leaders and the guiding coalition have become substantially self-organizing and do not require the direct involvement of me or my team to continue the work of the transformation of fitness, which is really great because it accomplishes one of my aims, which is how to get out of that part of the organization because we have many other parts of the organization that we need to work on. So that's been the big one. Secondly, oh, I, I can share one more uh, thing, which is... Good, good. Well, I'm going to come back to one because you said something amazing, but go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> the thing that I like about it is one of the things we, we say for people is that we have an asset and that asset when it's deployed if we're not mindful about how we deploy it, it can be incredibly costly for others. And at the same time, it can be incredibly valuable. And it's a real delight to watch people discover that there's no mystery to why things have been a struggle for them because this asset they possess, they've been deploying it somewhat mindlessly, creating a lot of costs for other people. And at the same <laughs> time, they, they actually discover just how valuable their asset is when it's being deployed really well. In other words, we're wildly off calibration in terms of how much value we are and how much cost we are. And so when people actually can take ownership of the, the way they deploy their asset, they really like it. Like like you get this group of people that are going, 
like are really clear about how to keep the cost down and how to keep the value up. And it's a joy. It's a real joy. In fact, it becomes, becomes somewhat problematic because when they find themselves in other environments, it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is really <laughs> painful having to deal with people who are deploying their assets in really costly ways, you know, so. So well said. So, so well said. And so to make it clear for anybody that's listening for this first time, some of the personalities that we teach and their role in a transaction simply said that somebody can deploy their asset in a part of the transaction where that's good. That provides value. Mm-hmm. They can deploy the asset in another part of the transaction where that's a cost. That's mm-hmm. bad. And that slows things down. So People, as you're saying, are becoming more aware of where to deploy the asset or perhaps withhold their value, right. <laughs> hold their tongue, you know, et cetera. And, and that speeds everything up. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, there's some like second order, third order kind of effects that are like really, I, I guess, satisfying. It's, you know, again, kind of back to the joy thing. It's like when someone shares, you know, wow. In 25 years of being trained, this is the most valuable thing I've ever been trained in. You know, it's like, okay, good. You know, it made, yeah. a, it made a really big difference. Pretty happy about yeah. that. So I want to go back to a thing that you were talking about mm-hmm. a moment ago. Is one of the things that you said about bringing TCX to the organization and, and what it is offering. You mm-hmm. mentioned that the teams are self-organizing. Yeah. So it's been i think our commitment in working on the transactional competence for cross-functional teams or tcx as mm-hmm. people are coming to know it that that program is designed to to sort of bring people around a common campfire or mm-hmm. we'll call it a framework so the framework is transactional competence or the transaction cycle or the personalities as they're related to that transaction cycle or their role in the transaction or that one to build a transaction requires building an environment in which the transaction does exist and how do we speed that up and how do we eliminate the cost and how do we make the most of the assets and all of that. So right. tell me a little bit more about what you're observing as people begin to learn the principles of transactional competence and then self-organize. What, what are you seeing? Well, I, I think that like, so it's an arc. So we, one way we distinguish fitness in, in our company is we talk about sit, crawl, walk, run, fly as five right. states of fitness. And we also say what has people move from sit to crawl is training from crawl to walk is coaching from walk to run is mentoring and from run to fly, which is a transcendence that takes development. And then what has someone said at all is the framing. They find themselves in a frame where they can identify their fitness as like, whoa, that's a gap, right? Like until mm-hmm. you're actually in the frame, it's like, how would I know? So as people, you know, they participate in transactional confidence for cross-functional teams, it's set up as a webinar where 45 minutes has got some of the distinctions and 45 minutes is where we're engaging in the dialogue about what people have found. And there's an arc to their participation where um, over the 10 webinars, they're raising their fitness through the crawling stage and starting to get into walk. After the webinar finishes, it's like, well, where's the opportunity for deliberate practice? Where is it that we get to keep applying this? And so we've been at work on building. So the, the teams have come together around particular programs and projects where we're building something called a consequential environment for team fitness for our hundreds and hundreds of engineers. And we have a, a working group that's doing that. And we're at work on how do we build that? And we use transactional competency distinctions to help design that con- consequential environment. And in that process, it's been fascinating to watch as people learn like we have a personality type called a producer, their orientation to the world is is very much grounded in objective reality. And this particular producer is in tears as she works out for the first time that there are other ways to invent. You can invent possibilities that are not always the, the, the fix to a breakdown. Her relationship to possibility is it has to solve a problem. And, as an you know, there are inventors in the transaction design who are actually able to invent possibilities that satisfy aims regardless of the breakdowns, and that was 
that was really moving to her as she discovered that she had been angry at people that invented possibilities that weren't grounded in breakdowns. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, wow, I mean, it's like really kind of, and and, um, and she would tell me and she'd say, like, I'm really agitated and, you know, frustrated that we're in a conversation for possibility that's not grounded in any kind of reality. And then over the course of that time, she found that what had been created by the group was actually a solution to, it actually met one of her aims about, you know, the commitment she has for people's self-expression and personal development. So mm. very, very satisfying in that regard. In the self-organizing nature, it's super interesting watching how people come together. We have some distinctions around planning strategy tactics and implementation. They mean something very specific, but what happens when this group comes together, they ask the question, where are we and who's leading? Which is a really interesting way for a group to come together because there's like, well, where are we in the transaction cycle? Are we in strategy? Are we in tactics? Are we in implementation? Are we in planning? Where are we? And then who's leading is automatically a function of that. If we're in strategy, then it's the inventor performer who's leading the dialogue and the others immediately take on other roles. And so leading becomes very fluid. It becomes a function of where are we in the transaction cycle. And so we say it like this, that leading is a verb. You can see it. It's in the doing. It's a phenomena of team. It's a phenomena of the environment. It's just not a designation. It's people at work. And it's, it's really awesome. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. So there's a... The framework for transactional competence includes mm -hmm. what we call PSTI or planning strategy tactics and implementation. And it defines where we are in the transaction and then the roles that are involved in that part of the transaction. So where are we in the transaction and who's leading is a fantastic way to approach the transaction at play. And I think that's one of the things that I want to turn to for just a moment, because it's been my experience that another aspect of what's discovered when we get a team together, we find very, very early on around, I think, module four or so, we seem to find it around module four that people begin to address, well, what are the aims of this mm -hmm. group or of this team? And it starts to make very real that there is a transaction you could say on the table or in the room or in the enterprise, but there's a transaction outside of us that we began to address. And that transaction has an aim. And then the question is, what's the aim and where are we? Right. right. So what's the aim and where are we? And what begins to happen is, is that people begin to see themselves as an aspect of a transaction, not the overlord of it, or not in fact, distinct from it. So they're an aspect of the transaction. I begin to see that I'm able to, show up and lead in a part of the transaction where I'm a value mm -hmm. or remove myself where I'm actually a liability. In one of our map two papers, Kirkland calls on the, the example about the all blacks where the all blacks are famous for the transference of leadership, depending on who's got the ball. Mm -hmm. I think that's the simplest way to approach that. So what can you tell us about, what you experience with people grabbing the ball and the impact that it has on the speed of the transaction. Because ultimately, I think from what you're talking about before, if we go back, we have a commitment, a primary aim that we're quick to market yep. and we're able to learn 
very quickly and move yep. very quickly. So can you tie all that together? Well, that's like a, there's a little bit of a cascade there of context within context and so forth. But if what's decisive around time to market is the capacity to learn. And what impedes learning is people's lack of awareness about how their deployment of assets slows down, like really in either grinds transactions to a hold or creates delay then just by paying attention to how I get to participate in a transaction really does speed things up straight away. So you touched on this idea about leading moving. So there's a layer in there which is deals with how do I lead a conversation from a place of intention rather than from an agenda or, a, yeah, for, well, let's say from an agenda. Leading a place from an intention lets the thing unfold. And so when we talk about being in a particular part of the transaction, hey, we're in planning or hey, we're in strategy, and who's leading. There's two people having a conversation at that point, the inventor and the performer, if it's, a, if it's a strategy. So what's happening is a dialogue. And so in the dialogue, things are starting to emerge that are consistent with the accomplishment of the aim. And everybody else is participating. In, and the, what's happening in the participation, even if people are silent, they're out to fulfill the intent of the conversation, which is to resolve strategy, uh, which is actually the allocation of assets. That might seem a little airy-fairy, but bear in mind that this group's already grounded in agile practices, and every ceremony in the agile practice has an intent to be fulfilled. And so we, we're grounded in the fulfillment of an intent regardless of the actual uh, practice. So this dovetails so nicely into the practices of agile generally. It just it just works really well. It's really resonant. Yeah. Mm, fantastic. Around session eight or nine of the TCX program, we mm-hmm. often ask, ask we, we see people asking the question, all right, how do I bring this back to my function? I've come together in this team as a cross-functional team. I'm now, I now know I'm walking back into an environment yep. that, that lacks some things. It lacks the consequential environment. It lacks the understanding of transactional competence or the framework of personality. It lacks all these things. And we begin to address that people in fact, need to build a kind of environment around them. And we talk a little bit about that. Is there anything you want to say about that or anything you can tell us that you observe about that as people begin to go build that environment around them? Wow. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, So I think what starts to become apparent is people's willingness to be there's a decision point, and it's kind of the decision point around fitness for anything. The environment that I go back into after having been in, say, TCX, is an environment that's set up to accomplish a different set of aims. It's organized to operate very differently than uh, one might operate trans- in a transactionally competent way. And so what people have to confront is, here's a different way that I could be operating, and nothing in my environment is set up to deal with that. <laughs> like nothing. And then the next question is, is well, what's my relationship to that? I mean, can I do anything about that or am I just going to kind of acquiesce? I mean, it's a bit of a red pill, blue pill kind of thing. Am I just going to like, right. you know, go back to the way it was and just put up with things or am I actually going to move in ways that actually cause a state change? Now, in a transformation around agility, we're already committed to the state change. So the only question is, is it sooner or later? So that's part of what comes out of this is like, oh, I have to deal with the fact that my environment is just not set up to it. Now, if people say, yep, I'm ready to step in, well, then the next thing is, is well, where's the opportunity for deli- what we call deliberate practice? So, And that's what we see in any kind of raising of fitness, you know, my own journey along CrossFit. It's like, well, there's a reason these moves are called Olympic moves. I mean, <laughs> they are not easy to do. Oh, mm. God. I used to think I could do moves. <laughs> it's like, no, there's a lot to an Olympic move. Anyway, so so that's the same kind of thing. It's like, how do I become fit, transactionally fit? And so part of my role and part of the role of others that, that help cause a state change in organizations is to create the kinds of environments for people to have deliberate practice and what we say is is qualified feedback from someone who's actually competent at the at whatever it is that you're trying to learn as a discipline so mm-hmm. that's a piece of the puzzle for people to figure out for themselves and they opt in and then generally speaking people that opt in and participate they start to distinguish themselves from everybody else 
In fact, they start to occur as like not just transactionally competent, but competent in their roles. And they start looking like they're in the wrong roles. In other words, they should be promoted. And so, I mean, that has its own consequences as well. It's like this thing accelerates people's careers. One of the notes I'm going to read just as a segue, Mm -hmm. you talked about Marcus Bell, I believe Marcus Bell, who described what you do. And what you wrote is, is that Marcus characterized what I do for large tech companies is help solve billion dollar problems for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. (laughs) Which I love. That is a, a great characterization of the value that you bring to large corporations. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to know if there's anything you'd like to say about that as a way to begin to wrap up. And then also perhaps as a transition into telling us a little bit about consequential agile. Oh, okay. Sure. So let's see. I think one of the things that's like an unexpected delight in studying with influence ecology is is one of the conditions of life we talk about is money. And I think like most people, well, I, I hear I am generalizing like I know, but uh, I think at least for myself, my relationship to money was kind of grounded in a background of scarcity. And as we study money as help, it became really apparent to me that large corporations are doing, are allocating money to organize help. It's part of the process. I don't know, there's something inherently ethical. I'm not sure if ethical is the right word, but it it just really resonates with me to help companies organize their help. (laughs) Like they're Mm. a collection of people. How do we be organized? And it's not like the headlong pursuit of efficiency. It's actually how do we organize? Another way I might say it is that there's a way to be organized where you can really minimize the suffering and maximize the joy. And by the way, that's economically advantageous. So, you know, that's kind of helpful. And and mm-hmm. I I think, you know, if I take the the agile principles and look at how do we operate at scale, I think TCX is one of those things that really allows us to operate at scale and really accomplish economic outcomes and people related outcomes around suffering and joy. So that's that's really why I go to work each day. <laughs> That's what I like to do. That's fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, John. (laughs) There's a couple other things I'm curious about. So if you were to, to speculate on the next two, three, five, 10 years Mm -hmm. for yourself and your, and what occupies you, Mm -hmm. what do you imagine? So, it's a little, well, it is fuzzy. I really, it's kind of a fuzzy frontier for me. But I, like, so I think the, well, we talked about consequential, or you referenced consequential agile. So there's a website, consequentialagile.org. And if anybody had told me that I would be, you know, like building a website that's an org thing for like a group of people to galvanize around a set of ideas, it's like, you're kidding. Why would I do that? But anyway, we have. And it's a collection of eight insights. And, and my assertion is, is that if, if, you know, if you go to work on any three of these insights, you're going to knock it out of the park. It's an invitation to anybody who has an interest in this area to get involved in a dialogue about what is their own experience around these insights. And, and when we rolled it out at the SAFE conference in San Diego about two weeks ago, I mean, the audience was just like lots of nodding. So it's like, okay, so there's there's shared experience around these insights. So I think there's a seed being planted in the environment that says, hey, one way to think about what we're dealing with here is, is, is through this lens of insights. It's not prescriptive. It's just saying, hey, you know, it's helpful to know that people value promises or it's helpful to know that knowing requires doing or it's helpful to acknowledge that thinking accurately beats the alternative and that there's something to deal with about thinking accurately about thinking accurately those are things to like really get our teeth into so i have i have some kind of i want to say it's not really a vision it's like here's a seed let's see where that goes and if people want to galvanize around that i think we can build a body of knowledge that really supports people framing and engaging and really fulfill on the promise of agile at scale and mm. less suffering, more joy, and great prosperity. It's great. 
Alex Bold, thank you so much for being a guest today. As always, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, thank you, John, and thank you to everybody at Infantscology. Today's talk is a small segment of the program we mentioned in our interview. The program is called Transactional Competence for Cross-Functional Teams, or TCX for short. This is merely my introduction to the program and is a means to begin to orient participants. Here's the talk. We are the leading business education in transactional competence. That is our specialization. That is our focus, transactional competence. And fundamentally, we just teach ambitious professionals and executives how to construct the fundamental transactions that accelerate their influence, value, and results. And that piece, accelerate your influence, value, and results, we're going to focus on throughout the program because ultimately what we're here to do is to accelerate some things. So that's the way to relate to this. We're here to accelerate some things. And ultimately, we want to accelerate your influence, your value, and results with those initiatives that matter to you. The way to relate to transaction briefly is that I'm going to point you to a transaction cycle. We're going to come back to this in a variety of ways. The transaction cycle is the fundamental model on which everything else lays. So this model will be something you become very familiar with over time. Just to orient you rather quickly, because I'm going to come back to it, we invent things, invite people to consider them, we present them to others, we agree or commit or contract to something, we fulfill that contract to some satisfaction, then we complete or judge that transaction, assess its value, reinvent it, and around and around and around we go. So our commitment is, is that people find a means in which to accelerate transactions by identifying a few things. One, where they're valued, where they're an asset, where they're competent in some part of the transaction, where they're fit in some parts of the transaction. And more importantly, where you're not fit in some parts of the transaction or where you may dismiss parts of the transaction or where you may dismiss the value of some piece of the transaction. And many people find that their their initiatives, their aims, their transactions, uh, what they're working on often fail where some piece of the transaction is simply dismissed, not considered, or weak. Uh, so we're going to address that in a variety of different ways as we go along. We find that many people don't think accurately about the transactions built to satisfy their aims, and they may not fully understand that framework that I just showed. And understanding that framework allows people to participate in exchanges that can either allow them to reach their highest aspirations or cripple their ability to meet their aims. So we're interested in making sure that you can construct transactions that accelerate things, or more importantly, find the holes in the boat, you know, where some aspect of that transaction is missing and it does impact your ability to meet your aims. As a sense of what our programs do for people, as I told you at the beginning, our programs have been spread word of mouth for almost a decade, last couple of years, a little bit more in the open market. But they've spread so rapidly because what we do and what we teach allows the average person to produce 47% more income than anticipated in six months. So on a personal level, there's a big impact that people experience in the fundamentals of transaction program, for example. And as Alex said before, that's a personal program. But what you're about to learn is something quite similar in nature. Some of the basics that we teach in the fundamentals of transaction program are taught here. Now that's a six month program, this is 10 weeks. So we're not gonna be able to do much other than teach you some of the basics in this program, but again, focused quite clearly on a team and a team's initiative. This program, Transactional Competence for Cross-Functional Teams, is meant to, as Alex talked about, address some team initiatives. And as you know very well, with Agile Project Management, there's an approach where individuals within the group must coordinate across functional teams. And with that, there are some inherited things. There are some inherited allegiances, alliances, there's an entire inherited environment of command and control and so forth. 
And there's an importance in working with cross-functional teams where removing those impediments requires a new kind of framework, a, a cohesive framework with which to honor a new alliance where you now transact for influence and compliance across functional teams. So this program offers that framework with which to accelerate initiatives. And the important piece here is that this acceleration can produce a reduction in expensive. However, most important, we can profoundly reduce the cost of missed market revenue. The aim of this program is both to provide that framework, a cohesive framework, a way for everyone to orient to some framework, to coordinate action, but also to arm you individually with the competence to produce the influence and compliance you require in the environments that you seek to occupy, build, or maintain. It's quite apparent from some of the work we did before that often is the case that an individual within this group is attempting to produce some buy-in, some influence, some compliance in some environment. So we're going to work on that. In fact, we call that building an influence ecology. So our name and what that means we'll get to in just a little bit. But this is really the point and the aim of this program. My special thanks to our guest, Alex Bold. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with him and all the links to websites, books, or downloads mentioned in this podcast. The Influence Ecology Podcast is produced by Influence Ecology LLC in Ventura, California. This episode was recorded October 15th of 2019 and was produced by Tysel Crandall and me, John Patterson. You can find a transcript for this and other episodes at influenceecology.com. This episode is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, staff, mentors, and students around the world. Co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and our colleagues comprise an international collective of professionals who are active in the development of the philosophy of transactionalism and the discipline of transactional competence. Kirkland is considered a leading philosopher and authority in the field, and he has authored more than 500 papers on the subject, study, and discipline. This episode includes contributions by Carol Gregory. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring, entitled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know.